Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast, I'm James, this is Pete. G'day folks, it is episode 184, it is the 8th of September, pretty big show coming up, I mean, I reckon, look, I've been working the IPA for 7 or 8 years now, I reckon this is genuinely Mm. one of the biggest weeks the IPA has ever had for media impact, I mean, obviously it's an incredibly depressing week if you are in Victoria, there is so much to get sad about. And we're going to get into a lot of that, but there's been a lot of work that the IPA has done that we are going to be talking to you about. And then, because I'm sure, like me, everyone out there needs a bit of break from straight coronavirus chat, we are going to be having two interviews, which are going to be really exciting and not that much to do with corona. That is Bjorn Lomborg. Obviously, a lot of people know him, the skeptical environmentalist. He is going to be talking to us about his new book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. We're going to get into a lot of discussion about what the proper ways to fight these things are, a lot of discussion about how that 12-year stat that gets thrown around isn't that up to scratch. Uh, and then we also have Connor Andrew Titus, who is an IPA campus coordinator from the Australian National University. He's going to be talking to us about a... Uh, Incredible story about the ANU's ethnocultural department wanting to get rid of a Churchill statue, and then when Generation Liberty wanted to debate them, they said, no, it's too triggering. That's literally what happened. So Hmm. we're going to be talking to him about that, campus censorship, and because he's one of the newest campus coordinators we've got in our always growing team of IPA campus coordinators at every university, like all these universities around Australia, we're going to be talking to him about why he's so excited to join the team. But unfortunately, it is a pretty depressing week. So, do we want to get into lockdown extensions, babe? Yeah, I just wanted to say I was really excited. You know, I mean, Bjorn is one of my sort of top five favourites ever, and I thought Connor did a great job with his debut up against one of the greats. So, great stuff, Connor. And he's got an extra special job, you know, being up in Canberra. Like it's difficult for him. So, yeah, let's get into it. What are we doing? Lockdown. All right. So you probably saw it on the news, but um, stage four restrictions in Melbourne, which include a night yacht night. Time curfew have been extended uh, for two weeks until September 28 from um, from midnight. So stage four, sorry, we'll go through to extended uh, September 28 from midnight next sun- Sunday. Andrew said the curfew would start at 9 p.m. instead of 8 p.m. and people will be able to exercise for two Great. hours instead of one. Woo. Great stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and I'll just quickly run through this. If daily case numbers fall to an average of between 50 and and 30 a day by 28 September. Public outdoor gatherings will be able to increase and to, from two people to five. Some kids will be able to go back to school, plus there will be a host of other ones, which I won't go through now. From the 26th of October, if the average has fallen to fewer than five cases a year, the curfew will lift uh, and there will be no restrictions on the reasons people can leave home and the 5K travel limit will also be reached, will also be lifted um, and then a range of restrictions will drop on November 23 if there are no new cases for the two weeks before then. So a 14 week lockdown will make us pretty much the longest lockdown in the world, James. It was one of the most depressing days in Victoria's history on Sunday. Uh, There was just this complete sense of betrayal, complete sense of uh, just loss. I mean, when a plan like that comes out, a plan so divorced from reality and so antithetical to the idea of recovery, to the idea of getting people back to some sort of life. Uh, I mean, I I genuinely, I've never seen uh, Victorians that angry before. I'm just checking social media, just seeing people out and about in the street. That sense of just righteous anger was palpable. I just don't think they can follow this plan. I think it would have to change. Otherwise, just what are we doing? And I mean, you're already seeing over the last two days, I mean, it comes out this morning that the government's now looking to use Salesforce to trace 
contacts, which other states like Western Australia and South Australia have been doing. Why they haven't been doing that since March, who the hell knows? But it's quite clear that there's a change in tone of just, okay, well, you know, we are going to try and roll back these restrictions a bit earlier and we are going to be trying to do other things. But the fact is this plan came out and it is terrible. Now, you're telling me that New South Wales, under the idea of the Dan Andrews plan, New South Wales would be under curfew right now. That's where he wants Victoria to get to. That's how aloof and how divorced from reality he is. And then he says, we're not going to get COVID normal until we have 28 straight days of zero cases. What is that plan? You can't do that without a vaccine. 28 days? It's genuinely uh, ridiculous. Yeah, and I think you're right about lots of people being angry. This was a massive turning point. Like, we'll talk about another turning point in a sec, but, you know, people have, like, let's face it, mostly Victorians have supported Dan Andrews, but I don't think that's the case anymore. People were were like, hang on, I thought this was going to be over now. We've been doing this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, I thought this was going to be over... Uh, and I don't think we can reach those targets. Like, so if if we've already by the end of this, we'll already be like the longest lockdown in the world, in the developed world. Um, and I don't think it's going to end when he says it's going to end. If he if he follow ends up following those rules, because I don't think we can get to sort of under five cases or whatever it is. Um, so and as yeah, obviously as you mentioned, the lie of the medical advice, the unanimous medical advice, has been completely eviscerated by this. Like so many epi- epidemiologists, other medical professionals have come out in response to this, saying, "I don't agree that we should be doing this." And, and clearly, as you mentioned, in New South Wales, they've got a different plan. Clearly, you might be getting medical advice, but it is not unanimous across people. Uh, and um, the thing that they won't do is show us the modelling. They won't show us how how they came to these decisions, so people can't criticize it yeah we just have this idea that like oh this is what the supercomputer tells us this like and then the second we ask to see some of these stats and some of these different situations it's like that's too hard for your little brains this is for dan andrew's brain only and then okay we talk about civil liberties we talk about the loss of hope and the fact that we're going to be longest now ipa research coming out today shows um sorry just let me get this stat right because i just Modelling by Free Market Think Tank Institute of Public Affairs has revealed that a total of 696,000 jobs will be destroyed in Victoria as a result of the lockdown measures from March to November. This is basically on the idea of how many losses that Stage 4 has already had and if these restrictions continue to go like this. 696,000 jobs destroyed. Yeah, exactly right. And this additional component of the lockdown will cost 260,000 jobs. Uh, and of course, they talk about they've got this extensive modelling, which they won't show us, about the medical cost of coronavirus. I would like to see if there's any modelling about the other costs of the lockdown, the cost to people's health in other ways than COVID, uh, the economic cost, the cost of mental health. Now, David Limerick said that they won't have that, inf- they wouldn't be keeping that information last week. Um, I find that extraordinary. You'd like to think at some level they've got some number somewhere on what the cost of the lockdown is. Um, and if they do, they should tell us what it is uh, and how but they came to this. This is what happens: is that every time these questions come up in these press conferences, Dan Andrews just says, "Oh, I'm only focused on bringing down these numbers. I'm only focused on bringing down these numbers." But there are yeah. so many other things that are going on. You can't look at an issue like this through one single lens. Yeah, exactly right. And it's the complete abrogation of moral responsibility to always say, "Oh, it's the medical advice," and "Oh, I've got this supercomputer which is saying, which is giving me this advice." It's like, well, hang on, we're making moral you know admittedly excruciating moral calculations between different parts of the population like do we give up a a kid's uh you know we're sacrificing a whole generation or a whole 
year of schooling for kids to protect other parts of the population. Now, that's an excruciating moral choice. The modelling doesn't tell you to make that. You know, medical experts don't tell you to make that. A supercomputer doesn't tell you to make that. That's a really difficult decision that we should be making as a community. Um, and, and every time those questions are raised, it's just either oh, medical advice. It's like, well, but it just has nothing to do with the medical advice. The decision to, to sacrifice a generation of children has nothing to do with the medical advice. So um, I think, yeah, but like you talked about the public mood, like I think people are starting to twig to this, um, to the fact that, hang on, this is going a bit too far. Because, uh, yeah, like people who had never talked about it, who had always supported him, just out of people that I know, like mates and stuff, are now like going, this is crazy. Because this is like another seven weeks or something, isn't it? Like yeah, um, yeah, uh, and then another stat from an IPA poll that we put out in the last week shows that forty-seven percent of Victorians agree that uh, with the statement, "I've either lost my job, had my hours cut, or had my pay cut, or I know someone who has as a result of lockdown restrictions." Forty-seven percent. So it's an extremely grim week in Victoria. The only thing you can hope is that the plan changes because that plan is just going to kill this state. And you think about all the hospitality industry, they can't open their doors till November. Retail stores can't open their doors till November. And that's on the idea that we're going to get, like we're going to hit every single target. It's too depressing to think about. The other thing I want to talk about with this one is that the Herald Sun got their hands on an advanced copy on Wednesday that had all of this stuff in it. Tom Manier broke the story. And the government says the next day, okay, that's an out-of-date draft. And then basically the exact same draft comes out on Sunday. Yeah. Oh, and all the cheerleaders. It's just bullying at this point. Like, okay, we're going to... This thing comes out, it's broadly accurate. No, it's not. It's out-of-date. Then when it does come out, there's not even an about-face of just, oh, you know, well, it probably was a bit more up-to-date than we gave it. They did change... In their defense, it looked like they changed the color scheme. From um from another color to purple, so you know there was a couple of slight changes, but yeah, no the whole the whole demonization and um one of the positives I would say is perhaps the demonization of people who question the lockdown might stop because you know we were right and um a lot of people are starting to twig on to that now I would like to raise a point James about we don't talk enough about or it's just not involved in the discourse around this at all, and that is the regions of Victoria. There are 27 local government areas in regional Victoria with zero COVID cases. Across northern Victoria, there is a hand, just a handful of cases, um, all well below the government's own benchmark of 10 cases reported a day, uh, and most of northern Victoria hasn't had 10 cases, period. So they should be able to, as far as possible, start to open up uh, in a way that Melbourne isn't. Um, and it's a disgrace that some of these towns that are isolated have no cases and just no possibility of getting cases, um, you know, are stuck. And they're cut off from their jobs and their friends and their family and yeah. they can't even go over the state to sell their produce if they want to. It's it's just so grim. Yeah, so I just wanted to give a special shout out to the regions. Well, you also wanted to bring up the demonization of people that are sceptical. And this was another shocking story over the last week that we want to talk about, which is the arrest of Zoe Bueller. Now, I imagine every single person watching this or listening to this podcast right now has already seen the footage. They know exactly what we're talking about. And hopefully they were just as horrified as Peter and I were. I know certainly on my emails, uh, people were. Now... Uh, I, like, sorry, I, I don't really want to get into it. I just want to get straight into the outrage, which is why the hell was she handcuffed? What possible physical threat did she provide in, on that morning? Why was it in front of her family? Why couldn't it be done over the phone? And why is it illegal in Australia to hold an opinion? 
Yeah, it was that was like as I said, we were talking at another turning point. That was another turning point. Seeing a pregnant woman in her pajamas woke a lot of people up to what's going on, and um, it was just insane. Like she, as she sort of said, she didn't she didn't know what was happening. She thought she might have been being kidnapped, which she sort of was, but but you know by the police, not by um, criminals. So. Yeah, that was a massive turning point. There was no need for her to be in handcuffs. You know, it was just ridiculous the way it played out. Now, Luke Cornelius, we talked about him a lot, the Assistant Commissioner of Victoria Police, who, as we know, had a completely different view of protests, depending on what the political view of the protesters is, said the arrest was fine, but we absolutely stuffed the optics in these circumstances. Now, what he means by that is that it, the mistake was that there were optics. That yeah, was exactly. what he's worried about. Like, <laughs> what did you yeah, mean? You stuff the optics. This is exactly what you wanted right. to happen. Uh, it, it, allow me a personal plug, but I had an article in Spiked again about the oh. arrest. So go read that. But as I like, I make the exact same point. Apparently, the only thing wrong with this arrest is that we have footage of it. Yeah, exactly right. And she turned on Facebook Live, uh, not because she was trying to be a big, you know, campaigner against the lockdown. She turned it on because she was legitimately concerned about her safety. She didn't know what was going to happen. She wasn't sure that they were police because of the way they'd sort of barged in and she just put on Facebook Live so people would know that it was happening. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how much I can talk about it, but I know we have a lot of, obviously, IPA members that listen to this podcast who are just as outraged as us and I, I guess all I'll say is we're on it. Like, I, I don't know how much I can talk about right now, but the IPA, we're on the case about this one. Uh, all right, another piece of IPA research that we want to talk about this week. So, Pete, we're all in this together, right? That was Scott <laughs> Morrison's words. We're all in this together. Okay. In July, over 96% of Victorian public servants voted for themselves to receive a 3% annual pay increase in a deal between the Victorian Public Service Union and the Victorian government. Daniel Andrews. Great guy. Also received a pay rise of $46,522, despite all of the job losses that we've had again. Over 600,000 job losses in Victoria since uh, the coronavirus panic began, but at least the public service get their pay increase, and so does <laughs> Daniel Andrews. reason I bring this up on this show, so we put out a poll showing, uh, you know, blow me down with a feather, but Victorians are absolutely outraged about this, with 75% agreeing it was wrong for Victorian politicians and public servants to receive a pay rise at the current time. So go to ipa.org.au to check that out, because we're not all in this together. That was never the case. It was disingenuous then. It's cringeworthy now. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Now, there's two Australians, James. There's, there's the private sector and the public sector. There's the beautiful people and the elites, and there's the rest. Uh, public Victoria IPA research found that private sector wages in Victoria dropped by $1.9 billion in June, while wages in the public sector increased by $88 million for Australia-wide. That first figure was for Victoria. For Australia-wide, the IPA found that wages in the private sector have gone down $5.9 billion in the June quarter, but they've gone up in the public sector by $738 million. So, yeah, two Australias. And as Ken Hussey started talking about, and it's something you'll hear more about more and more in terms of the economic recovery to COVID and COVID lockdowns, is the K-shaped recovery. Uh, we talk about a V-shaped recovery and a W-shaped recovery and all these different things, but a K-shaped recovery is... Um, so for people watching, I'm doing a K with my fingers now. I uh, think people like listening a- can also imagine what the letter K looks like. <laughs> We're going capital so, K. We're going capital K. It looks like a bit of a um, a bit of a gang symbol. But the top the top finger in my K is public sector, and the bottom finger going down is private sector. So uh, that's the K shaped recovery. We'll hear more and more about that. Um, but yeah, that's um, 
kudos to the 4% who voted against that public sector pay rise. <laughs> At least there's a few out there who thought, maybe not this year. Yeah, this one might be a bad PR move, which it was. Um, all right, so the other thing we want to talk about, I mean, we're very Victoria-focused because that's where the eyes of the nation are right now, but pretty big national cabinet meeting on Friday. They, they, this was the one that Scott Morrison was really pumping up as the idea that this is the one mm-hmm. where we're going to get a national hotspot definition. Once you get the national hotspot definition, you can start opening up borders. Again, there are states with no coronavirus cases that are close to other states with no coronavirus cases. Yeah. So you just wonder who the hell, what, what is going on. So Scott Morrison goes, once we start figuring out what the idea of a hotspot that you want to keep your people safe from is agreed, then we can start getting on track for borders. It's a national cabinet. This is the one thing that was set up for clear, correct decision-making about coronavirus. Pete, what happened? Well, uh, Western Australia decided to go its own way on the pandemic policy. So the, they said they were going to, the other states said they were going to open up their borders by December, but Western Australia said they're not going to do that. They're going to follow their own roadmap. Um, he said, uh, Premier, WA Premier Mark McGowan said the hard border would stay in place until the COVID transmission, uh, community transmission, I should say, of COVID was eliminated in the Eastern states. So that could be any time ever. Uh, probably until they get a vaccine, if you think about it. Um, and he said, until such time, WA would continue to stay safe as an island within an island. Um, so I noticed the WA opposition leader, Lisa Harvey, made a good point. She, or Lisa Harvey, I should say. She said, um, they, they, you know, they support following the medical advice. Unfortunately, the government does not share its health advice with the opposition. So once again, we have a situation where clearly it's, a, you know, the fact that WA has avoided you know, COVID disaster is an electoral winner for Mark McGowan. Opening up the borders is a bit of a risk and, and seeing to be the strong man and protecting WA is an electoral winner for him. And opening up the modelling to people like the opposition and to other people would potentially, if the modelling suggests that opening the border isn't such a bad idea, uh, eat away at that. So once again, we see these decisions which are massively impacting people's lives and the government refusing to to say why they're making them and refusing to show people that they're working. Um, so it's a pattern. I get closing your border to Victoria with the way that coronavirus has been over the last couple of weeks. Like, I, mm. I, you know, I, I still think you can open it up to regional Victoria. I still think you can open up to trade and contactless delivery. Um, I, I just don't get it to closing your border to South Australia or Queensland or these other places which have extremely small outbreaks, extremely small community transmission. I don't get it but that's what happens pete is that it's not entirely the medical advice that's driving this it's also the polls this is outrageously popular the day after yeah. the national cabinet the west australian paper uh, sorry the west australian the newspaper the biggest one in west australia ran with the title our west australia day like <laughs> this level of barracking for the government it says september 4 will forever be etched in folklore why because it's when canberra <laughs> finally conceded that our state is special our economy is special and we should dictate our borders from now on this state shall be known as our australia day i th- this might sound like old man yelling a cloud but i genuinely think <laughs> this is the closest we've come to this federation dissolving since the 1930s like if you can't agree on a national hotspot definition if you can't even get all the states to get in a room and say maybe it would be good if we opened up our borders by christmas what can you do at this point yeah i don't know i mean like i think eventually you know i think western australians deep down want to be part of australia i don't think they'll they'll break away one thing i noticed about that um that that front page you just read out was they had australia 
and in that big writing they said you know western australia is special and then like the left hand side headline i felt was a bit skewing the narrative a bit because it had something like 700 elderly people attacked in the last year or something so i felt like that uh skewed the narrative just a little bit um so yeah look it is it is a worry i feel like it's a very political decision but eventually like all you know political decisions hopefully the people of western australia pressure their premier into opening up like as you mentioned other states barely have any cases northern territory doesn't have any so i don't know why they wouldn't be open with the northern territory but um but yeah all right, uh, we've got a whole lot of stuff we need to be talking about and the show's already running long, so we're going to move over to the UK. <laughs> uh, so, Extinction Rebellion, uh, and this one, this would have been the biggest story in the world if it wasn't for the fact that uh, Dan Andrews has completely lost the plot. But Extinction Rebellion basically blocked newspapers from being able to publish and send out their newspapers in England. They t- targeted basically everything owned by Rupert Murdoch. So, The Sun, The Times, The Sun on Sunday... The Sunday Times, four different papers apparently, and the Scottish Sun. They also, also uh, the print editions of the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Telegraph, the Daily Mail, and the Mail on Sunday, London Evening Standard. All these were affected. Extinction Rebellion, turning up, stopping publishing from going on, and I mean preaching to the choir. I'm sure with the audience that we've built here, Pete. But these people are terrifying. This is literal totalitarianism. It is as close to fascism as if you could ever want. It is the idea that the second you start disagreeing with us in print, we are going to stop you printing. We are literally going to burn the books. I think we probably have a few Extinction Rebellion listeners, James. I don't think you should um, pigeonhole our listeners like that. But no, you're right. Um, I This is, I mean, as if it hurts, like it's meant to be because Rupert Murdoch hasn't published enough stuff in his newspapers about the environment or whatever. But... It doesn't hurt Rupert Murdoch. He's really rich. It hurts the old mate selling bloody newspapers on the corner or old people who don't see anyone who read the paper from cover to cover every day and they don't get the paper today because of you guys. Um, and it's because they can't... What they believe is stupid. They can't participate in a political, normal political process because they would just not win. It'd be like, the world's going to end in 12 days and then the person debating against them... Sorry, 12 years. The person debating against them will go, no, it's not. And then that would be the end of the debate. So they have to do stuff like this because their ideas are so uh, ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it's like they almost don't want to be popular. Like people, they just deliberately make things difficult for people. Yeah, but it does get headlines and retweets. Uh, all right, and Pete, last story we want to talk about. You saw something that uh, Trump was doing over in the US. Well, I really enjoyed this. Trump has banned critical race theory from federal government agencies, over which, of course, he has jurisdiction. Now, I'll read a little bit from the memo uh, from the from the Office of Management and Budget, which said, it has come to the President's attention that the executive branch agencies have spent millions of taxpayer dollars to date, tra- to date training government workers to be- believe divisive anti-American propaganda, and they've been ordered to stop funding any such lessons. As I said, Trump called it propaganda, critical race theory, and um, that it was spreading ideas like white privilege. Now, James, I reckon this is... Trump does this kind of stuff well. Like it's a, you know, it's a, it's a culture war. It's a thing that's an easy win for him, uh, and people really love it because they're really concerned about the kind of things that are going on, not just in government agencies, but universities and schools and stuff like that. So he does stuff like this well, and I don't know why we can't do something like that here. Why can't the federal government say, yeah, we're not going to do diversity training in our federal departments? Like, you know, during the, during the week we we um, the federal government purchased the rights to the indigenous flag, which is a great thing. Um, that that's now like a, a national symbol that the government has control over. Why couldn't they at the same time say, because we are one nation and because we value all Australians, we're also going to get rid of diversity training in our federal agencies because it's a divisive, anti-human you know, idea or whatever. 
But, you know, why can't we do that here is my question. Very good. Uh, we got one story later in the show that's similar to that. But uh, because we're running long, we should move over to heroes and villains. We'll start off with heroes. Grunt the pig freedom snort for people to stand up for liberty around the world. Pete, who is your hero this week? Well, James, I've been a critic of Luke Darcy. Ex, for those not uh, footy fans, an ex-footy player here in Melbourne. Um, I thought he was a bit vanilla with his footy coverage. You know, just a bit vanilla. But in 15 minutes on Triple M Breakfast Radio... Uh, this week, he did more. He held the Premier of Victoria to account far in a far more thorough fashion than the ABC have done for the last six months. So, Dan Andrews, you know, turned up to Triple N Radio with Eddie Maguire, who's obviously a massive lefty, and Luke Darcy. And I assume he thought he was just going to get a few softball questions that he could go and push out to the masses. To the masses, you know. Yeah, um, especially because Eddie Maguire is now in Queensland. I'm pretty sure at the. Um uh, AFL hub, so you can't really get the boot in too much because he's abandoned the sta- state. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And he's big on lockdowns, Eddie Maguire. Um, anyway, Luke Darcy, though, basically grilled him for 18 minutes. It wasn't like he was rude to him. It wasn't like he was, you know, I'm going to get you. He was just sort of was informed. You know, he was citing studies from Lancet and things like that. He, you know, as soon as Dan got into his sort of here's the straw man that you didn't say, and I'm going to start arguing the straw man. He said, well, actually, Premier, no one says that, no one thinks that, in a way that you've been crying out for journalists to do for six months. And it was great. It was, you know, he wasn't rude. He just sort of pushed him on stuff. And um, look, it's just, it's, it's on Twitter and stuff. Have a listen to it. It'll make you feel good. Uh, and Luke Darcy's my hero this week because of that. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is another reason you just want Parliament to be seeing a lot more than it is because when you trust the journalist press pack to, um, you know, ask the questions that mainstream Victorians want, you are relying on journalists to do it. And mm. not all journalists think the way that mainstream Australians do and mainstream, and they're not accountable to the mainstream Australians that elect them. So apparently the world needs to turn to an ex-AFL football player to ask what literally every Victorian has been waiting for these press conferences to answer. Sorry. Good on Luke Darcy. All right, my one. Um, Similar one over here, uh, and it's just on the idea of listen to the experts. The experts are going to get us through coronavirus. Senior World Health Organization advisor Dale Fisher, who ran Singapore's early successful COVID-19 program, said it was not clear why there needed to be fewer than five daily infections before a curfew and stay-at-home restrictions in Melbourne could be lifted. He said, why does Daniel Andrews need the numbers to be so low, less than five, when it could be less than 10 or less than 20? So... I just implore Dan Andrews to listen to the science, listen to the experts, listen to uh, the World Health Organization and rethink this plan because it's a loser. Uh, all right, let's go to villains. Oh, I'll just add to that. There's expert after expert who's questioning this. Like, it's it's so... Just any of the newspapers are running stories, interviewing experts, um, questioning it. So do not accept from anyone that this is the view of the experts. Okay, villains. So Extinction Rebellion, fake nerdy run. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. So this is, we don't mind the fake nerdy runs. Fake nerdy runs don't hurt anyone. Uh, But the Extinction Rebellion in October had a fake nerdy run and now we call them villains of the week because it is defiling a great Australian institution by having a nerdy run that wasn't really nude. So James, who's your villain this week? Julian Burnside is the most fraudulent of all of the frauds. Now, I don't know (laughs) if he is an Australian icon. Maybe he's just famous here in Victoria. Sorry, if you don't know who he is, he's a human rights lawyer. He's he's a QC. He's quite, quite senior in the legal industry. I think he's the president of Liberty Victoria as well. The idea that if there is a infringement on human rights, Julian Burnside is going to be your guy. He's a guy that defends uh, the rights of refugees. He's the guy that defends the rights of activists. 
Sorry, you would think in a time like this, when we're really in the crunch, when all of, Australia, all of Victoria right now is basically living under a police state, that's the one guy you'd have. And responding to a story that mobile surveillance units are being used in parks and public spaces across Melbourne to remotely monitor citizens during stage four restrictions, this idea that unmarked police scans are just uh, unmarked police fans are just watching you as you go about your one hour of daily exercise, just in case you're out too long. Unmarked police fans. Here's what he had to say: Liberty Victoria President says it all sounds pretty sensible to me. The restrictions that have been imposed are justifiable, even though they involve breaches of human rights. We are in a war against the coronavirus, and when you're in a war with anything, restrictions on your otherwise normal liberties are justifiable. Fraudulent. Even Liberty Victoria, which aren't exactly the biggest friends of liberty in the world, even Liberty Victoria came out and said, well, he was speaking as a private citizen, that doesn't represent us. Like, if you've lost Liberty Victoria, you are... I, okay, I nearly said things we'd have to take out of the show, but you can imagine where I went with that. <laughs> I just think, like, imagine spending your whole career defending human rights and then, you know, the, the, the one, like, the most egregious sort of, what would be the word, incursion in our human rights that we've ever had and may ever have and that you went, nah, that's right. Uh, like, nothing, not a single thing. You know, not like, I agree with some of the lockdown, but we shouldn't be doing X, Y, Z. Just, yeah, this is cool. Oh, we're so, in a war. We're in a war. <laughs> stop stop like, doubting the government in times of a war. You just done did decades of... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, we're all going to, yeah. Just imagine decades of advocacy and then, then doing that. Uh, right, anyway. Your villain? Yeah, my villain. Okay, so this, this is the opposite to Luke Darcy, the anti-Luke Darcy. So we talk a lot about Victoria. This one's from Queensland, and I'm sure we have a lot of Queensland listeners who are a bit upset with their Premier. Now, there was a hot mic after the Friday press conference of the Queensland uh, Premier Palaszczuk, uh, where the press conference ended. Palaszczuk went back into her office. Um, and uh, the Channel 7 microphone heard the nine Brisbane political reporter, Lane Kelcutt, talking to a couple of unidentified journalists. Now, the text of this is, because I, I won't play it because it is a bit crackly and you won't be able to understand it. Um, getting text messages, this is Lane, getting text messages from the Prime Minister's office saying you guys aren't interested in this material. Something inaudible, Dorothy Dixers. Journalist two, that was a Dorothy Dixer. Journalist three, you did, and starts laughing. And then Lane goes, hang on, you want a story... Or not. So what he's saying, so they're accusing him of asking the Premier Dorothy Dixers. He's denying it's caught on hot mic. The Australian newspaper went through the press conference to see if he had asked any Dorothy Dixers, James, uh, and came up with these two. Um, given the pile on the Queenslander, this is to, this is laying to the Premier. Given the pile on the Queenslander you in particular have received over the last 24 to 48 hours, do you feel it's a form of bullying against Queensland? Calcutt asked Palaszczuk. Next question. You're fed up with the criticism, aren't you? The point scoring. Like... This is the middle of a pandemic. We're trying to hold our premiers to account for these momentous decisions they're making. And Lane goes with, you're fed up with this criticism, aren't you? The point scoring. For, for journalists out there not doing their job, and for Lane, you are my villain this week. Finger on the pulse. All right, uh, let us go to our interviews now. We'll start off with Bjorn Lomborg talking about his book, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Uh, available everywhere right now. It's all, all on Amazon. It's all live. So get out and buy it. And hopefully you enjoyed this interview. Okay, I am really excited for this interview. We have Bjorn Lomborg, the author of the new book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right, brilliant. I want to start exactly there. So how does uh, this panic cost us trillions, hurt the poor, and doesn't contribute uh, and fails to fix the planet? 
Well, first of all, the plans that people are telling us to do right now, so the Paris Agreement and many other uh, climate policies have huge costs. And unfortunately, do, they do very little. Uh, so for instance, the Paris Agreement will cost between one and two trillion US dollars every year for the rest of the century uh, from 2030 onwards. Uh, that's a lot of resources. Now, it's not going to take us to the poorhouse. It's one to 2% of global GDP, but it's a lot of money. If that would also fix the problem, then maybe it was worth it, but it won't at all. So Paris will fix about 1% of the problem. So even if everyone did, which they don't, if everyone did all what they promised of China, uh, India, the US, Europe, everybody else did everything they'd promised and kept on it, not just until 2030, but for the rest of the century, the impact would be to reduce temperatures by the end of the century about 0.18 degrees. Uh, so uh, uh, centigrade. So, you know, about 0 0.2 uh, degrees uh, uh, centigrade. That's not very much at this enormous cost of, you know, so 60, 100 trillion dollars. That is a poor investment. It turns out that for every dollar we spend, we only avoid about 11 cents of climate damage. That's a bad deal. That's the first part. Then for the world's poor, a lot of people point out very correctly that global warming will hurt the world's poor the most. That's because the poor are hurt most by everything. They're hurt most by uh, bad education, by uh, infectious diseases, by everything else. So yes, also global warming. But the right way to help them is not by helping them get a little less, much warmer by the end of the century. The way to help them is to make sure they get out of poverty. And unfortunately, many of our climate policies actually make it harder for the world's poor to get out of poverty. And this then gets to, we're not actually fixing the problem. So we're spending hundreds of trillions of dollars of the century. We're harming the poor and we're not fixing the problem. How do you fix the problem? By innovating dramatically better, cheaper green energy. If we could get cheap green energy that was cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch. So the idea here is don't try to make everyone do what we've tried with Paris, but also before with Kyoto and with Rio and failed to do. Let's instead focus on the things that we know have worked throughout the last uh, uh, couple of centuries for humanity. If you have a big problem, you innovate your way through it. You don't tell people to do with less. You tell them, here's a smarter solution. Bjord, I think that the way you put it, the cost-effect uh, approach that you take for these things is really beneficial. Um, and when you sort of make those points to people, which I do all the time, I always steal your work, um, people people, are, you know, really convinced by it. So it's a really good approach. I would really uh, encourage people to buy the book. Now, what made, motivated you to write this book? Was it that thing about you know, us hurting poor people? Was it this idea that we're scaring school children? I saw that one in five British children have nightmares about climate change. What motivated you the most to write this book? Well, I, I think all of those things, but fundamentally, I think the the idea that people are now getting so terrified, as you mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of school kids are really worried. There's this uh, fantastic or phenomenal or really scary uh, survey that showed that every second person on the planet now believes that global warming is likely to lead to the extinction of the human race. That's just, that's just crazy. That's not what the UN climate panel tells us. They tell us this is a problem. By the end of the century, the impact of global warming is equivalent to each one of us losing 3.6% 
of GDP, of our income. So instead of, remember, by then we'll be much richer, we'll be 450% as rich as what we are today. So instead of being 450% as rich, we will only be 434% as rich by the end of the century. And I think that encapsulates this idea. It's a problem because we'd rather be three, uh, 450% as rich rather than just 434%. But it's not the end of the world. And telling people that it is, telling them that this is an existential crisis, as many of the, uh, so you know, Joe Biden certainly says all the time, but many other uh, public uh, uh, profiles in the, in the conversation on climate change tells us, is a way of saying you should drop everything else and just focus on global warming. And, and really, I, I think the metaphor here is if global warming was a meteor hurtling towards Earth, we should drop everything else and just throw everything at this one issue. But that's not what the UN climate panel is telling us. They're telling us it's a problem among many, many others. It's much more like diabetes. It's certainly something you'd rather not have, but you can't just wish it away. You have to manage it well. You can take medication, you can do some things with it, but what is the point is to make sure you get it under control so that you can go on with your life and actually have a good life besides that. And we're totally forgetting that in this conversation about global warming because we're so absorbed with it. So I think the, the, the simple answer to your question is because we've become so panicked about climate change, I think we need to you know, take a step back and realize we're having a false alarm. That does not mean it's not a problem, but it means we're badly tackling this problem and we're really fumbling everything else. Yeah, kind of hinted at it in that answer, but one line that gets really repeated a lot, and it's certainly something that a lot of my friends believe, is that we do only have 12 years to save the planet. Do you know where this 12-year mark came from? And I, I, I know you've already spoken about that it's not the same disaster that people think, but what is it uh, with that idea is that is so wrong? So... What happened in, uh, so for a very long time, people have been talking about we should limit the temperature rise at two degrees centigrade. Uh, that's already really hard and probably impossible. But, you know, uh, because almost nothing happens on the actual climate front and on the climate policy front, people started saying, well, why don't we just promise something even wilder? So people started talking about saying we should promise 1.5 degrees instead. And because they couldn't agree to very much at the Paris Agreement, they said, well, let's throw that in, in, in the preamble. Remember, in many, many documents across the world, we promise stuff that we never do. Uh, so, you know, we had this big uh, promise uh, back in the 1930s uh, that we were never going to go to war. Uh, we also, uh, you know, uh, for instance, Africa has promised about 60 different times that they were going to get education to everyone and we're still not quite there. Uh, so we promised lots of stuff. So in the Paris Agreement, the leaders also promised to try to get to 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is, you know, by any reasonable assumption, impossible to do. But what they then did was they asked the UN climate panel to tell them what will it take to get to this almost impossible tar uh, target. And what the UN dutifully came back and said was, well, if you want to get to this almost impossible target, it will take almost impossible effort. You will have to change the entire world by 2030. That's where that target came from because it came out in 2018. There was 12 years left to basically change the entire world if you want it to do something almost impossible. What it means is if you want to do something almost impossible, you have to do something almost impossible. 
it does not mean the UN is saying you should do that because that's a political conversation. In, in my book, I make the compa comparison to uh, speed limits. Uh, and I forget what the speed limit is in Australia. Is it 110? Yeah, when Sometimes. we are briefly allowed out of our house, it's about yeah, that. Yeah, so, so let's say it's 110 uh, kilometers an hour. We know we could avoid all traffic deaths if we just put the traffic speed limit at five kilometers an hour. But we don't actually make that decision. We do not allow people to drive just like they do on, on the German Autobahn and say, you know, just go 300 kilometers an hour. We have a sensible conversation. Should it be 110? Should it be 120? Should it be 100? But we don't say, should it be five kilometers an hour? It's technically the right answer to what would it take to limit the number of people dying in Australia from traffic to zero. But it's not a good answer because there are also other costs. And that's exactly the same conversation that we need to have when we talk about climate. We can't just say, what would it take to get to 1.5 without also talking about, oh, it would make us incredibly much worse off. Sounds eerily familiar to another conversation we're having at the moment. Now, uh, Bjorn, I wanted to know, um, so we've interviewed on this program, Matt Ridley is another uh, researcher that, that we talk about a lot. He's very optimistic in terms of forest rebounding, in terms of the environment, forest rebounding and animals rebounding. And he sort of makes the point that the wealthier countries are, the, the better they look after the environment. The best thing we can do for the environment is to lift people out of poverty. Do you share that view? Would you say you're as optimistic as him or slightly different? Well, there's certainly a lot of good arguments for this. So fundamentally, if you're poor, you don't care about the environment because you care about your kids not dying right now. And you care about the fact that you might be dying if you don't fix uh, you know, some of your very immediate problems right now. So very obviously on, on, on close environmental issues like forests, uh, like air pollution, uh, like water pollution, all those very simple uh, uh, pollution problems, you definitely do a lot better by getting people out of poverty. I think we also have a moral responsibility because fundamentally, if you want to do good for the world, it is about remembering that, yeah, sure, there's 1.5 billion people who are well off on this planet, but there's 6 billion people who are not. It seems to me that they have a, a, a moral right to be just as well off as we are. And that re means that they need to be able to get much richer and much better off. And they will fix a lot of their local environmental problems. Now, that does not mean we're automatically going to fix global warming. We don't see this trend. So, you know, it's in, in environmental economics, it's called the uh, uh, Kuznets curve. So basically the argument as, as you get richer, first environmental problems get worse and then they get better. That's true for a lot of local problems. We do not see that for climate change. So it's not like as you get richer and richer, you suddenly start emitting less. You don't emit as much more, but you still emit quite a lot. And so what we still need is to find a solution for climate. And that's why I'm saying let's invest a lot more into research and development into green energy. Because if we can make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, we can not only make ourselves and all the rich countries stop emitting as much or perhaps stop emitting at all, but we can also help the poor to get those same technologies. So just to give you a, a, a sort of metaphor, if you look at uh, Los Angeles back in the 1950s, Los Angeles was terribly polluted, partly because of where it's situated, but you know, fundamentally it was terribly polluted because there were lots and lots of cars. The simple sort of environmentalist argument would be to say, I'm, I'm sorry, could you stop driving those cars? Could you just stop all that? 
And of course, that would have had no success. I mean, they actually tried and no, it's not going to work. You can't tell people to not do what they really, really enjoy and what really helps them get around in their in their lives. What did work was the innovation of the catalytic converter in 1974. This little thing that you put on the end uh, on the tailpipe of your car and make the exhaust much, much cleaner. It didn't solve everything. Absolutely not. But it fundamentally is the reason why you can drive even more in Los Angeles today, and it's much, much cleaner. That's the same kind of innovation that we need for climate change. If we could innovate the price of green energy down, or another way, you know, just simply scrub the air for uh, CO2, very, very low cost, or all these other different ideas, if we could get just one of them, we would have fixed global warming, and we would do so while being able to make sure that the rest of the world gets to be rich. Yeah, you were talking about this in a recent podcast episode for The Spectator with Matthew uh, Matt Ridley that I was really enjoying listening to. And one of the things that you guys were saying was that it's it can be hard to get governments to get on board with this idea of just investing in green technology. And I guess I can be uh, a little probably skeptical here, but I tend to think that it's mainly because if the government just trusts the companies or the trusted investment will be able to find these answers, they're not going to be the ones making the big announcement about breakthroughs, whereas if they restrict other things, they will be. So it's a bit of a fame thing there. But why do you think governments are so reticent to invest in the green technologies as much as uh, you say? So I, I think there's there's two things. First, let's just make the argument, why do you actually need this? There's a fundamental underinvestment in all and uh, sorry, in all R&D, because R&D is very, very hard to patent and capture the value of. You know, if you innovate something amazing that in 50 years leads to an amazing breakthrough, it's great for the world, but it's very hard for you to capture that through your patents because they've run out by that time. That's true for medical research, which is why governments across the world spend lots and lots of resources on making sure that we get better health. The way they do that is by investing a lot of money into basic R&D, and then once it gets to the point where you can actually see, oh, there's a, there's a drug at the end of this tunnel, you have private companies invest in it and make money and, and, and get a patent and make money off of that patent for, for a number of years. That's a perfect and proven technology. We don't do that in climate and we don't do that in energy because there is so much focus on what looks good next year. So if you're really, really worried, and I think this is one of the downsides of us being so scared about global warming, uh, when you talk to most people, they think, well, the end is nigh. How the hell are we going to be supposed to be researching stuff that'll deliver solutions in 20 to 40 years from now? We need something today. Well, the answer, of course, is today we're just going to get bad answers. And next year, we're also just going to get bad answers. So what we end up doing is spending lots of resources from rich, well-meaning countries, cut a little bit of CO2 and have absolutely no impact. We do need these long-term impacts, these long-term projects. And what we also have to remember is climate change is not about how much we emit next year. It's about how much we cumulatively emit over the 21st century. So what we can choose is to say, do we want to have a tiny, tiny impact over the next 20, 40 years? Or do we want to invest so that we know we'll have a dramatic impact over the next 40 to 100 years, which will have much bigger impact on climate and, oh, also will be much cheaper, much more effective and help the world's poor much more? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's good, and I think it's fairer for people who are kind of living in a situation of poverty or on the edge of poverty that um, we don't let them miss out on economic development now for something that's not going to have any any impact when we know that maybe in 40 or 50 years time the technology is going to be heaps different um now bjorn you gained a lot of publicity in australia this is of course an australian podcast for your comments about the coverage around the australian bushfires which is obviously a huge issue in australia with regards to climate change here what was your issue with the coverage of australia's bushfires and what was your take on the whole thing so look, there's there's a whole conversation about, uh, and and again, I'm I'm a social scientist, so I have to be very careful about saying, look, there are lots of stuff I don't know, and I'm basically relying on some of the best sources, what they tell us, and certainly this is true for the uh, California uh, bushfires, that most of the impact has something to do with how you don't do uh, uh, prevent to burning, how you don't have a good setup uh, uh, between uh, uh, federal and state governments to be able to protect it, that you need to uh, 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 make sure that you have places where people don't build, that you have these building regulations, that you make a lot of these simple smart things. There is probably also part of this that is a signal from climate change. So what we are seeing is that uh, uh, fire is going up and probably part of that is because of global warming. But my concern here is to say that people are somehow suggesting that because part of it, so in in the US, some researchers are saying that 75% is because of human uh, 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 decisions like uh, you know, that you don't burn enough, that you don't do uh, 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 good building codes and so on, and about 25% is because of global warming. People are saying, well, let's just do something about climate change. But the reality is, even if you did an amazing amount for climate change, it would have virtually no impact in 100 years. So what you're essentially saying is, we are going to take the most expensive way to do almost no good in a hundred years, instead of focusing on the 75% that you can actually easily do something about today. And that's the really mind blowing thing that climate change to a very large extent has stopped being a problem that we want to fix. And it's much more become an issue where you just use it to hit your opponents over the head and use it as an ideological uh, sledgehammer to get your favorite solution. So people are basically saying, because of the uh, 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 fires, we should do uh, you know, X, we should cut more CO2. Although that is possibly the least effective way to help with fires, help the world's poor, help everything else that you really care about. Whereas what you should be doing is making these sensible, simple things where you have uh, uh, prescribed burns, uh, where you have better building codes. And then, of course, you invest in green energy R&D so that you will have a solution for climate change that will be much more effective in the long run. I want to talk about coronavirus for a second because I think what the last couple of months has shown is what would happen if Western countries started following agreements like Paris to the letter and the effect that that would have on the world's poor. IMF research is basically showing that poverty this year is going to increase for the first time since in the 1990s. Uh, you talk about the other diseases that are spreading through the developing world right now because Western efforts to help mitigate these diseases or Western relief efforts are getting shelved because of coronavirus fears. Is this what you're seeing as well, uh, that coronavirus is sort of showing this is what's going to happen to the world's poor if we start pushing these industries down? 
I think we have to be a little careful because obviously Corona and the response to Corona has very, very little to do with climate policy. So I think we, we should be careful not to see all of this in, in the lens of, of climate change. With that said, I think there is certainly a lesson for the world's rich here. I'll, I'll get to the poor in just a second. For the world's rich, for a very long time, environmentalists have been telling us, you know, if we just, you know, use the a bus instead of the, uh, if we just didn't use the car, if we flew a little less, if we just did a little less, we would somehow, you know, fix a big part of global warming. We've always known that that was actually not correct. But I think what Corona has very clearly shown us was the world just did that. We basically shot the entire world down in the first part of 2020. And yet the impact on emissions was tiny. The day when China was shut down the most, it still emitted 78% of what it normally did. Why? Because you still have to live, you still have to heat your house, you still have to do lots and lots of things. So even when you do this dramatic reduction, you only have a tiny impact. So one estimate shows that if we assume everything that's happened uh, this part of the year and assume that we'll get a second wave, we will still just see an impact on global temperatures by the end of the century of about one thousandth of a degree centigrade. So literally all the stuff that we've done will have no impact on climate whatsoever. Now, obviously we could do this smarter and that's the point I, I think we need to be, be aware. We would not be implementing a climate policy as stupidly as, as the Corona policy, obviously. So you know, we should be careful not to use the, the Corona policy as a sledgehammer, but it does tell you that when people talk about, let's go to net zero. Well, net zero, you know, in the US, we estimate the total reduction will probably be about 10%. That means if you have a second wave in, in the fall, if you do that, that means you'd have to have 10 shutdowns every year for the rest of the century if you actually want to go to net zero. Obviously, you could do it smarter, but that gives you a sense of the proportion that you're talking about. I think that works really well for the rich world. The poor world jumped on the bandwagon of the rich world and said, we're going to shut down India famously, you know, very chaotically shut down its entire economy. It was a terrible uh, impact, especially for, uh, for, for its poorest. And they very quickly stepped back from it. I think it was very clear. And we, we, we helped do some of the first cost benefit analyses for poor countries. Turns out that there is a very, very good argument for not shutting down when you're poor, simply because it's a terrible impact. You have fewer, uh, 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 old people, so you have less to gain, and you have huge costs, as you mentioned, that you're going to lose out for uh, TB and malaria and HIV and many other things. Plus, of course, it really costs on the economy, which is the lifeblood of these very, very poor countries. So it's a bad idea to cut, shut down in, in, in poor countries in general. But what it does tell us is that if you're not rich, if you're dirt poor, you're incredibly vulnerable to a, just a tiny reduction in your opportunities for, of your economy. And that, of course, is why we should be very careful to not go along with the sense of saying, oh, no, let's do Paris, let's do more than that, and let's make sure that everybody gets in there, everybody slows down their economic growth. That's easy to say when you're rich, even though it's not all that easy when it comes to election day, but it's very, very hard to do when you're poor. 
Bjorn, you, you touched on a bit of coronavirus uh, policy there. I wouldn't mind just throwing you one more question about that. So I think you, a few months ago on 60 Minutes, I think here in Australia, you said you were concerned the cost of the lockdown would outweigh the benefit. Is that a view you still hold, particularly with the wealthy countries? Um, or do you? Well, what do you think? Well, I think we, we should certainly be having this conversation. And unfortunately, very few countries did have that conversation. There's an argument to be said that for rich countries, it is probably a good investment to shut down shortly, briefly, and then find other ways to do it. But if you're starting to think about shutting down second time, as for instance, France is now talking about, it will undoubtedly become both very, very hard politically to do. Uh, people are just get simply not going to be willing to be shut down second, third, and fourth time. And of course, it's going to be incredibly costly. And so I think the comparison with corona and climate is much more, we need to have that crucial conversation. How much does it cost? How much good will it do? And we don't seem to want to have that conversation. I'm not going to say that there's a prepackaged answer here. I actually think that we can reasonably say for rich countries that have many, uh, that have many old people and that have a well-functioning healthcare system, shutting down once can possibly be a good investment. And that's what, for instance, the data shows for the U.S., but that is not so for, uh, for poor countries. So we did the world's first two uh, cost-benefit analyses for Malawi and Ghana, and we showed for both of them that the costs outweigh the benefits by about uh, somewhere 10, 20 to 1. So that tells us that we need to be very careful that we don't end up spending an enormous amount of resources doing a little good. That's both true in Corona, but it's certainly also true. And we have much, much more evidence and we have much more time to have that conversation for climate. And we should have that conversation on climate. Bjorn Lomborg, the book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at all bookstores. Thank you so much for your time. Great to talk to you guys. Now, welcome on to the show, Connor Andriotidis, IPA Campus Coordinator from Australian National University. Connor, welcome to the show. Pleasure being here. Thank you very much. Connor, we wanted to get you on the show today to talk about a story that came out last week about this battle between Generation Liberty and the, uh, I think it's the Ethnocultural Department at Australian National University over a statue of Winston Churchill. So do you want to tell us what's going on? Yeah, of course. Sure. Um, a couple of months ago now, as, as you said, the ANU Ethnocultural Department launched a petition, um, a change.org petition, uh, calling on the university to remove, and, and I quote, non-critical representations of racist figures, starting with that of Winston, Winston Churchill. Uh, at ANU, we have two Winston Churchill statues. The first one is uh, a replica of the statue in uh, London Square, the one that's been boarded up to protect it from the protests. So the second one is is just a, a bust of, of his, oh, well, it's a bust of, of his head. Um, now, they're wanting to remove these statues, um, as, the, as the quote suggests, um, because they see Churchill as, in essence, a white supremacist. Um, and therefore, they don't think that we should be memorialising memorializing him at all. Connor, have they given any justification for why they think Winston Churchill is a white supremacist. Have they have they said anything about that? Have they mentioned the role he's played in defeating pretty racist ideas? What have, what's been their justification? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, going on with what uh, you were kind of implying there. I mean, if, if they think Winston Churchill is bad, look at the guy they beat, right? Um, 
I, I think it's uh, a, a, quite a distortion of, of history, um, this, this whole petition. And, and realistically, I can't see too many reasons as to why they want to get rid of the statues. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll use things like that Churchill, I guess, subscribed to some views at the time um, that, that the British Empire was more advanced, for instance, and um, that he, uh, I, I guess, uh, isn't as progressive as, I guess, 2020 views are now. I think that's really the crux of it. Um, but at the end of the day, the reason why they're able to launch this petition is because of the acts of, of Churchill, right? If, if Churchill and, and those who fought and died for us in, in World War II yeah. didn't do so, then I'm, I'm pretty sure the guy on the other side wouldn't let them raise petitions like this. Uh, that's what I think that. Yeah, it wasn't the biggest fan of freedom. Now, unfortunately, like these stories do come around a fair bit, the idea mm. of universities wanting to uh, stifle representations of famous figures. But what gets me about this particular story is that it's one department saying this is what needs to happen and uh, the, then Generation Liberty, they come forward, they say, we want to debate this, this is a really important issue, we've got a lot of people at Australian University who disagree with this, let's debate it out. And the department says no. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, what, yeah. Like, what does that tell you about these people? Well, they said no to debating the statue, uh, debating the content of the statue because they thought simply doing so would be too traumatic. Um, I think, though, it's quite revealing of the motivations of the petition. Uh, quite often, people will retort to, I guess, our arguments by saying that, well, at the end of the day, we're still going to be talking about Churchill in, in history classes. We're still going to be talking about Churchill in in textbooks by removing the statues we're not removing history but i think the fact that they don't want to debate the content of the statue i think really actually shows that they have no intention of keeping churchill in i think the the thoughts of of history they quite literally want to erase him um they said that by removing the statue it will paint a more accurate depiction of history um and actually as renee gorman said in one of her recent articles for the ipa it's difficult to imagine how a more accurate picture would be reached without debate. Connor, do students get to vote on this? What's the deal? And do you think the question I ask and the question I wonder about is, is this like a tiny minority of people that think that Churchill statue should come down or is it like a big group of students? Please tell me it's the first one. Yeah, well, sure. tell, me, so the, tell me the truth, the, but I hope yeah. it's the first one. <laughs> Um, no, I don't think students get to vote on it. They get to sign up to the petition, and I, I, I guess that's to show the university administration that there's support behind it, but there's only been 228, I think, signatures since June. Um, so realistically, there aren't too many people going out of the way to support this petition. Um, and I think, like most things in council culture, it, it really is just a vocal minority on campus um, shouting really loudly. Um, I think the ordinary ANU student doesn't care or, or really quite realizes this for the, the fast that that it is. Um, the way this might progress, I think there are, there are two factors to, to, to think about. The first is that sadly, the university administration just might not want the hassle of, of having to fight uh, socialists. And so they might be willing to take down the statues. Um, but the other thing too, is that the statues are owned by the Churchill Trust. Um, uh, here at ANU or, or, or just off campus. And so if they were wanting to remove the statues, they'd have to go past the, the Churchill Trust first. All right, so there's a bit of hope that things might stay the same. But like, 
to me, it's actually bigger than this Churchill statue. It is the fact that this department can just say, we're not going to debate it. Like, we're going to make this, we're going to bully everyone into seeing the world through our eyes. And if they push back, we're just going to say, look, this is too dramatic. You can't mm. trigger us like that. We're not going to debate it with you. Like, is there a, I know it, this one's harder, but do you see a way in which there can be a bit more representation on campus for students that for the next time these stories start to pop up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's why I'm really excited to be part of Generation Liberty, right? Um, at the moment, we only have one other, I guess, right of centre group on, on campus, and that's the ANU Liberal Club. And they do a great job. Um, but realistically, there's one club against quite literally tens of tens of, of, of leftist political groups. And so I think by Generation Liberty coming to ANU here, and I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged, I guess, to be in the role of campus coordinator, um, it's quite exciting i think the opportunities that are going to come around to have um, a voice to stand up for for freedom and, and stand up for people like churchill who um gave us the freedom to be able to have these debates right yeah great stuff connor we'll talk a little bit in a sec about why you got involved in camp uh you know in generation liberty and where you uh got your interest in the ideas of liberty from but just before we do that i've got a question do people like in class go I don't want to, this is a serious question. Do people in class say, I don't want to debate stuff? Like if an issue comes up and you go, well, you know, I think that capitalism's awesome and Australia's great and the environment's not going to be stuffed or something, you know, whatever normal views you have, do they say, I don't want to debate that? Does that happen? Um, I haven't had too much experience with uh, students not being willing to debate things. I've had experience with students getting um, a little bit, um, I think, antsy about certain topics being raised and being quite quick to sh try to shut down debate. So in, in effect, I guess, I guess, yes. Um, I, I haven't seen too much in, in, in classes of um, debate not being facilitated, which I think is quite encouraging. And though there are plenty of stories of, of tutors and lecturers who um, mightn't want debate i've had uh, and been very fortunate to have had a number of tutors who have been quite excellent in in facilitating it so not not all hope is is lost in, in that regard that's good yeah, to hear what kind of stuff do, do people try and shut down just when you mention those antsy those things that are a bit antsy um yeah i think well the most the the, the, the classes i've had the the most experience of um with with those type of type of, of debates being somewhat of a problem are, are law courses um, and I guess some of the more new nuances in um, when we're talking about the, the, the law and, and ethics, how we should go about, well, what's the nature of law? Should, should people be um, encouraging judges to be, I guess, social activists or um, should we just be following the letter of, of, of the law? Um, and I apologize. I, I, might, I, might, I can't think on the top of my head, perhaps, um, of a specific example. Um, but they typically do, uh, that typically does occur in uh, law courses rather than um, security courses. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have their own specific ones. So you mentioned how you're happy to be an IPA campus coordinator, and I encourage anyone, if you are at the Australian National University or if you know someone who is there who isn't already a member of Generation Liberty uh, and isn't involved with the IPA, get involved because, you know, people like Connor are doing such a good job over there. So, Connor, like, wh why did you want to become an IPA campus coordinator? Yeah, kind of as I alluded to before, I think it's really important that we have I guess, the voice for freedom here here on campus. Um, I think it'd be excellent to see more and more students come together um, and defend, uh, I guess, 
the values and ethics that have made our society what it is. I, I think quite sadly, people often forget or are indifferent um, to, I guess, the Judeo-Christian ethic that, that, that built uh, what I think our, our country is and, and, and built um, a lot of the great things that we, we have, right? Um, and so I'm personally really excited to, I guess, uh, get cracking on starting some events and get cracking on, as, as I'm doing now, speaking on the uh, how, how ridiculous this proposition to remove the Winston Churchill statue is. Uh, so it's a, it's a great privilege to be part of this and very excited for all that we can do. Do you feel, Connor, a little bit um, shortchanged that this would be a much bigger story if we weren't in the middle of COVID? Like, you know, you'd probably get to go and bolt and, you know... Jonesy might have you on. It wouldn't just be the Young IPA podcast. Do you feel a little bit shortchanged by just. Daniel Andrews' announcement? Yeah, well, in addition to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fortunately, I don't feel um, too, too shortchanged yet. Um, being, on, being on podcasts like this, and uh, it's, it's been a great privilege all, already to, to get to, to, to chat about it. Um, if anything, on, on, on campus here at the moment, the, the conversation around the statue has, has died down a little bit. Um, it, it might. It seems to be less fashionable with the with the, the lefties at the moment. They've got um, other things that they're, um, I think, uh, harping on about at the moment. So uh, it, it's good though that we get to uh, chat about these things a, a bit more. So yeah. <laughs> All right, Connor Andrew Titus, IPA campus coordinator at the Australian National University. So get involved if you're there, and you're also like we're in a lot of universities these days, so you can get involved whichever campus you are at. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you to Connor and Bjorn. Two very good interviews right there. And once again, go out and buy Bjorn's book, uh, How Climate Change, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. And if you do want even more books on the subject, uh, the IPA's latest addition to the Climate Change the Facts series, uh, you can now go and register to buy one. You can go to ipa.org.au slash cctf2020. All the information is there. So that's two books right there that you should be buying. All right. Uh, huge loaded show, gigantic show. We've only got two stories we're going to be talking about. We're going to fly through them. Uh, now, Pete, Pete uh, something at the Northwestern Law School, which was pretty funny. Okay, so uh, it emerged on the internet this week that Northwestern University Law School had a town hall meeting online recently where everybody began with a ritual denunciation of themselves as a racist. Now, I thought, James, I thought, actually, I'll just read through some of these. So, firstly, we've got, uh, I won't say the name. My name is X. I'm a racist and a gatekeeper of white supremacy. I will work to be better. Next one. So, thank you all so much. My name is X and I'm a racist and I will try to do better. And then it's I'm Jim, and I'm a racist. So that's how the that's how the town hall meeting started. Now, James, I thought if you're a gatekeeper of white supremacy and a racist, and you admitted it, shouldn't you be sacked? Like, if you're a white supremacist, shouldn't you be sacked? I, I just thought, how could you possibly consciously keep your job if you all you're doing is gatekeeping? Uh, but Pete, just in the spirit, is there anything you want to admit about yourself just before we end the show <laughs> today? Anything you want to share with the group? Any sentiments no. I can use against you at a later time? I'm good. I'm all right. I just think like if if someone goes like if you go, I'm a white, I'm a gatekeeper of white supremacy. I'd be like, well, can you stop it? Yeah. <laughs> Don't sit it, there and tell me you are. This is just the level of cultish behaviour that this all is. This idea that you'll never be good enough. Like the, yeah. it's like Scientology. You'll never be pure enough. You've just got to pay for one extra course. You've got to go to one extra seminar. Then you'll be good. And then when you get to that seminar, no, 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 you're still a gatekeeper. You're still not doing yeah. enough. Buy my book. It, it's. 
It is the world's greatest pyramid scheme. This whole thing. Yeah. And I want to get I involved. Would, <laughs> well, we keep we keep talking about it. I think we should do it. I would I would love to be able to ask. So when someone sits there and goes, "Oh, you know, my name's Jim and I'm a I'm a gatekeeper of white supremacy," I'd love to be able to go, "Okay, what? Do, give me some um, give me some examples." Yeah, and just I like, forgot about oh. that our good cop bad cop situation. <laughs> yeah, you just like, come in and start really giving it to people, and then I come in and build them up again. We should charge people know, for that. All right, last story we got. So uh, talking about Trump banning critical race theory from yeah. uh, the government. So happened over in New South Wales. New South Wales, look, New South Wales Treasurer Dominic Perrottet says he was going to quash an attempt by Treasury bureaucrats to lecture staff about the use of gender pronouns. Basically, the idea was the New South Wales Treasury's Economic Strategy Deputy Secretary, <laughs> Economic Strategy Deputy Secretary. I am so glad I do not have that job title. That sounds they like probably a job get paid I do not want bit. to have. They're probably on a bit, but your day-to-day tasks would not be intellectually <laughs> stimulating, which is why you need to find stuff like this to do. So Joanne Wilkie sent an official message to staff about the need to create a safe space at work. Things like adding a pronoun preference to your signature block and not assuming when you're talking to a colleague that they are heterosexual, cisgendered, or endosex. First, I've heard of endosex. I would put myself in the top 0.1% of online people in the world. I've never heard of endosex. Anyway... So use partner rather than wife or husband and use an introduction like welcome folks rather than hi guys. So Dominic Perrottet watching that and all I would say is if you're working at the treasury, just be a nerd. Like just, you don't need to do this. Just focus on the maths. Leave <laughs> this weirdo stuff to liberal arts grads. But guys, just focus on the maths. Like we're, we're, we're in a debt crisis right now. Like do not be focusing on this. Try and keep track of how much money we're spending would, I think, be their main task. But, yeah, I mean, when did guys... I thought guys was... You could say that for everyone. I didn't think that was sexist. I reckon we've already discussed that guys now means women and men and it's fine to say it and it's actually... Um, okay, if I'm the top 0.1% of most online people, you are the bottom 0.1%. <laughs> guys has not been okay since 2010 at the very early. I say guys constantly. Uh Anyway, look, and I like... Oh, I so the say bit it. I'm just saying in the eyes of the internet, that is, oh, that's a no-no. Well, you know, I just like to point out that it used to be fine. That's what I'm saying. Uh, the, I, the, the peak behind the curtain, though, the best bit of this was when Dominic, Dominic Perrottet was on Sky and he said, Use, you can call your spouse whatever you like, wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, honey, babe, whatever. So you saucy thing, Dominic Perrottet, calling people honey and babe. Uh, and he says... Um, you know, I wouldn't. People, have to, as he as he rightly points out, they've got a real problem rather than bloody diversity stuff. Um, you could argue diversity's caused a lot of problems, but um, yeah, crazy. All right, sweet. Uh, that's it for the show this week. Pretty depressing week for Victoria. Hopefully, <laughs> things get better. Hopefully, plans change. But uh, I don't know. I had fun on this show, so hopefully, everyone else did too. Thank you to Beyond Lombard. Go out and buy false alarm. How climate change panic costs Australians hair support and fails to fix the planet. And you can also go to ipa.org.au slash cctf2020 to get the latest in the IPA's Climate Change the Facts series. And thank you to Connor Andrew Titus, an IPA campus coordinator from the Australian National University for that interview as well. Get involved with Generation Liberty if you are uh, at university or if you know someone who is at university. We've got so much exciting stuff. We're obviously on so many different topics that appeal to students. So get involved. Uh, cool. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like us, uh, leave us a review on iTunes. We're also on every podcast platform to tell your friends and family about the show. You can also go out, the IPA with you is kicking so many goals at the moment. Gideon Rosner talking about restrictions. Looking forward to podcasts coming out every week. 
they're uh, that's rolling along as well. And then we've got stuff like Five Favorite Books, Australia's Future, and the Great Books of Liberty podcast. So, so much to listen to. And of course, uh, The Heretic, if you ever want to get into the Peter Ridd story behind the scenes of that. Uh, cool. See you guys next week. Thanks, guys. See ya. <laughs>